Hebrews chapter 13, we are almost finished with this phenomenal book, almost there. It's been about almost two years that we've been in it, and uh, I'm, I'm not excited to finish it at all. It's been wonderful. I've loved studying this book with you guys, uh, but we just got a couple more weeks to go, and then we'll be done, and we've got to be asking Jesus where he would have us go next. I don't know. I've been asking the Lord, praying daily, and I don't know that I've heard yet, so you guys might want to ask the Lord too, because it's going to affect you, you know what I mean? Uh, before we read the verse today, don't even look at it. Verse 17 is so nasty that before we even read it, we got to pray. So before we even read it, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's good and that it's awesome, that it builds us up, that it teaches, that it encourages, and it rebukes and it refines. We thank you for those qualities, that aspect of the word. Thank you that it's not men's ideas that are doing these things, but it's God's very word accomplishing these things in our lives. And Lord, above the work that the word accomplishes in us, we thank you for it because it shows us you, Jesus. And you're the one that we love. You're the one that we adore. You're the reason that we gather as a church. You're the reason that we scatter on mission. You are our king, our savior, our love, and our Lord. And we're thankful for the word because we see you in it. And today we've got to talk about us a little bit because this passage pertains to us, but we ask that Jesus, you would supersede any thoughts about us. Any way that we think about ourselves would be through the lens of who you are and what you've done and the fact that it's your church for your glory. Lord, we ask together that you'd help me communicate these truths in a way that is consistent with scripture and glorifies your name. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Okay, now let's get, look, look, look at this verse. Verse 17, speaking to you guys. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. <laughs> it's my turn. No, I'm just kidding. I love this passage. It's my favorite passage in the whole book of Hebrews. No, I'm just kidding. Not really. Uh, but this passage is going to implore us to obey and submit to the leaders that are in the church. Because the text does so, I will do so. Because the Bible implores us to obey those who are leaders in the church, I will implore us to be so. It's not because I've got some itch to scratch or some axe to grind. It's because this is what the Word of God is doing in our lives right now. But before we do that, I thought it would be fair and profitable if before looking at how we submit and obey leaders in the church, if we would be informed through Scripture about what we should and should not expect from leaders. This is good for us to know as we go into this verse. What we can and what we maybe cannot expect from leaders. So the way that I'm going to deal with this text is I'll make it a two-part sermon. Aren't you surprised? Part one this week, part two next week. Part one is the responsibility of leadership. The responsibility of leaders. And then next week, we'll deal with the responsibility to leadership. The church's responsibility to leaders. And let me say this. This week and next week, I intend to hang both groups out to dry. 
I intend to really nail us both on this issue because I think it's important for functioning as a church that glorifies Jesus Christ. And so we're just going to set a real high standard on both ends of the study, a real high standard. Why? Because ultimately Jesus is our standard. And so we can't set it too high. And it is the word of God that is informing these things. Our standard comes from the word of God according to the character of Christ. So I intend to hang us both out to dry over the next two weeks because I think that's what the word of God does on this subject. But we'll start with the leaders. And we can just very simply say that leaders do have a responsibility to God and to the church. And I want to clarify for us what the church can expect from leaders. So we'll do it through this little three-point outline. This will give us an idea of where we're going. Point number one, there are leaders in the church. Point number two, Jesus is the senior leader of the church. And point number three, where we'll spend most of our time, is the leader's responsibilities to the church. So the first thing that I want to say, and it's sort of a preferatory statement really, but it needs to be said, is that there are leaders in the church. At least there's supposed to be. It should go without saying, but the reason that we must say this is because there are some modern misconceptions about the church as it pertains to leadership. Two that we'll note right now. One popular idea that's floating around the church is that we don't need a leader. There are people meeting together as the church, calling themselves the church, saying we don't need a leader. The second major misconception is that everyone is a leader. Now, as for the first, the idea that we don't need a leader, uh, the idea there is we just want to come together as a community and it disrupts community when somebody tries to lead or somebody has the need to lead and we don't really like or trust authority and there might be very good reasons for that. So therefore, we don't see the necessity of authority or leadership in the church. And we're just going to kind of bring our various gifts and insights together and just kind of get along and just kind of do this thing. That's a neato idea. But that's not a biblical idea. Very postmodern to be sure, but not at all biblical. The second modern misconception is that everyone is a leader. I don't know what to say about this one other than it doesn't even make sense. Or don't even think about the Bible for a minute. Just approach it pragmatically. Everyone's a leader. We'll all lead each other all the time. It doesn't even make sense. Not everybody can be a leader. Then who would they lead? Hello? And yet there are in the church these misconceptions that we don't need a leader or everyone is a leader. And because these misconceptions are somewhat prevalent, we need a biblical explanation. And here's the biblical explanation succinctly. Throughout history, whenever God has endeavored to do something among humanity, God has raised up leaders. God has chosen, called, anointed appointed and entrusted leaders throughout history whenever doing thing, anything in humanity. For example, when he wanted to free his people Israel, 
from being in bondage to Egypt, what did he do? He raised up a leader. That man's name was Moses. It is God who delivered Israel. God accomplished that with an outstretched arm in his mighty right hand. But he raised up a man that he would use. And then later on, as they were journeying through the wilderness, there were other men that came along, those elders that came alongside Moses that were appointed by God and anointed by God that helped to lead. And then later on, Joshua was established as a leader. Later on, judges were established as leaders. And God established prophets. And God established priests, excuse me. And God anointed kings in Israel. And all of these were to accomplish his purposes among his people. And then when we get to the New Testament, we see that it is not kings or prophet or priests per se that are to lead God's people, now manifest partially as the church, but what God raises up are elders in the church. First, there was the apostles and prophets, and Ephesians 3.20 says that the church is built upon the, the foundation of these apostles and prophets. But then, as Paul went around Asia Minor, preaching and teaching and establishing churches, what he did was appoint elders at the direction of Christ, for Christ's church, in Christ's church, for the benefit of Christ's people, elders were appointed. So what we see is that historically and biblically speaking, when God wants to do something, he raises up leaders. I know there's a mystery in that because God doesn't need people. God didn't have to do it that way. I don't think I would have done it that way, but God has done it that way because he loves people. And so throughout history, he's chosen to work through people, not independent of people. And so he has appointed leaders. What we see further is that our text, Hebrews 13, 17, takes for granted that there are leaders in the church. He's writing to this congregation of Hebrew Christians and he says to them, obey your leaders. He doesn't ask them, hey, are you one of those churches that has leaders or no leaders? Leaders or no leaders? Which one are you? I want to know how to deal with you. He just assumes in the church there are leaders. And so he says to them, obey your leaders. So there are leaders in the church. By the design of God, we need to know that. But more importantly, and this is is the single most important thing I will say all day. If you get this and you want to tune out, I'm cool with that. But get this. Jesus Christ is the senior leader of the church. Get that. Don't miss that. The New Testament says that explicitly in 1 Peter 5, 4. That Jesus Christ is the senior leader. The phraseology in 1 Peter 5, 4 is chief shepherd of the church. Now, we cannot let that be merely theoretical, nor can we give it a quick, oh, yeah, totally. I I understand that. Because what history has proven is that the church often fails to understand that. Both from the perspective of leaders and the perspective of congregations. We have a proclivity to make it about people and personalities and programs. When it is about Jesus Christ. He said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. It is his church. There is no other foundation that can be laid other than that of Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone and he is the chief shepherd. He is the head of the church and the foundation of the church. The church is his and it exists for his glory. And so we need to lay hold of very practically the fact that Jesus is chief shepherd. What does it mean? 
What does chief mean? Chief means first, primary, of most importance, and senior. What does shepherd mean? Uh, well, it's the same Greek word where we get our word pastors, poimen in the Greek. It means someone who does the work of shepherding, pastoring, caring for, protecting, leading, loving a flock. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the most important leader, the senior pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. And we cannot give this a mere intellectual agreement. We must let this inform how we approach church as leaders, as a congregation. How do we think about leadership? How do we think about worship? How do we think about preaching? How do we think about ministry and mission and being the church gathered and the church scattered if Jesus is a senior pastor? One of the ways that we've tried to lay hold of that at this church as leaders is we've done away with the phrase senior pastor for people. It's a common phrase used within the church all the time. You know, you look at the bulletin, you'll see it listed there. So-and-so is a senior pastor. We don't fault, we don't judge, we're not tripping on other churches that still use that. We are such wretched sinners that we had to free ourselves from the phraseology, the leaders of this church, and say, wait a minute, let's just be careful to remember and to remind ourselves every day that Jesus is the ultimate leader, and we are serving underneath him. And so we got rid of that title. No one in this church other than Jesus is called senior pastor. And we try to live that out. In our prayers, we say, Jesus, it's your church. It's a living organism, a true expression of you and for you. What do you want to do? We do not see the church as being ours. We don't see it as something that we can merely administrate or organize according to our wants, desires, insight. But it's Christ to do so. So Christ is the senior leader, the chief shepherd. And then what we see is that in the church, he appoints other leaders, other leaders. Now, the New Testament would identify these as pastors, elders, overseers. These are synonymous terms. A lot of churches separate elders and pastors, but I don't believe the New Testament does that. If you read the job description of an elder, what they're to do, what they're to think about, how they're to act in the church, it's a job description of the pastor. These are synonymous terms, overseer, elder, pastor. And what we see is that it, are, it is elders slash pastors who are called to lead the church under the leadership of Jesus Christ and as a team. In the New Testament, it's always a plurality of elders. The New Testament never presents it as a single guy, but it's a team. It says here, obey your leaders. It's a plural thing. And so there's to be a team of people called and anointed by God that lead the church together under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a team. It's a team of equals, different gifts, different roles, but equals, with an equal calling and anointing by God. But there does emerge often sort of a leader on that team, 
a first among equals is some of the current phraseology, a first among equals. It doesn't mean he's better than, it doesn't mean he rules over, but he kind of leads the team. It's like a football team. What football team doesn't have a quarterback? The quarterback's not the whole team, and the quarterback can't do beans without the receivers and, and the, the hiker dude, whatever, and the line, and so on and so forth. You could tell I'm a little out of my box here. <laughs> I would have talked about surfing, but it's a totally individualistic sport. But every football team has a quarterback. And, and listen, unless you have the whole team, there's not any game. Unless a whole team is functioning together as one, there's not any wins. And so the plurality of eldership in the church is kind of like that. It's a team of equals. There might be one guy who's sort of a lead pastor or a lead elder, but wait a minute. There is still the head coach, Jesus Christ. And any direction that the quarterback is giving, he got from the coach. He ain't making it up. He's taking his directions from the coach and then implementing it in the team. That is how a plurality of pastors under the senior pastor, Jesus Christ, works. So there are leaders in the church. Jesus is a senior leader of the church. And then this, leaders have a responsibility to and in the church. Now, as we talk about this, as we talk about leaders and what we should expect from them, I want us to hold two ideas in tension. The two ideas are this. The first is uh, my life verse, really. It's 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's really my life verse, because if you know me, the, I'm foolish. God uses the foolish things of the world. What we want to do when we think about leadership is hold that intention with James 3.1. James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers because as such you will incur stricter judgment. So we want to hold these two things in tension. God uses the foolish things of the world, but there's a high standard. He uses the fools to be sure, but they will be held to a higher standard of accountability because of the responsibility that they've been given. So when we think about leadership in the church, we realize, especially in this church, that they are idiots, but they're careful. That's the dichotomy. That's what we need to hold in tension. That's what we need to balance, is that leaders in the church are careful idiots. Please remember that as we talk about these things. As we talk about now some of the practicalities of what we should expect, I want to say this. Number one, we could say much more. The Bible is full of this stuff. Leadership insights from Genesis to Revelation. We could say so much more. And I am exercising great restraint to not say more. You know me. I want this to be a 16-part series, not a two-part series. But we will just limit ourselves to some of the major themes that we see in Scripture for leaders in the church. The other thing that I want to say before we get to the list is this. I'm going to try very hard to not make it personal. I'm going to let it be theologically theoretical, meaning these are the principles. This is a high standard of Scripture according to the character of Christ. And I'm going to try not to make it personal in the sense I'm I'm going to try not to say, this is what I do, or this is what the leaders at this church do, or this is what leaders at another church do, or this is what we don't do. I'm just going to try to not make it personal. I'm just going to set the standard out there. You know what I mean? And not try to condemn myself too much. And then next week, when we're talking about your role, 
I'll try not to make it personal then as well. I'll try not to point out the ways that you guys are failing. I could, but I won't. And as you're listening to this list, you could easily point out the ways that I'm failing, but you won't. We'll leave it theoretical and we'll leave the rest with Jesus. Now, number one, the first thing you should expect from your leaders is that they love and obey Jesus. You should expect this from your leaders. They love and obey the person of Jesus Christ. When you come under their teaching, their preaching, their counseling, when you observe and listen to and watch their life, you should come away with a sense that this person loves Jesus. There is an authentic, meaningful love affair with King Jesus going on in their life. This is not contrived. This is not professionalism. This is not ministerialism. They're not in this for themselves. They really love Jesus. Jesus. We should expect that from our leaders. Not only should we expect them to love, but to obey Jesus. We should see that they live lives that recognize the authority of Christ and want to come under that authority, that they desperately want to obey the Lord. When we deal with leaders, what we expect from leaders, we should think and know and expect that Jesus Christ is their senior pastor too. He's their Lord. He is their king. He is their love. Our leaders in the church should desperately and passionately love Jesus and seek to obey him. Second thing that we should expect is that they are called by Christ. We should expect that our leaders are called by Christ. In other words, the ministry for them was not one of many vocational options. It wasn't as though they were looking at, well, should I go into marketing or should I open a surf shop or should I be a professional football player or a pastor in the church? I think I'll go pastor. (laughs) There shouldn't be this sense that at some time in their life they looked and said, that looks really cool. And gosh, there's hundreds of people looking at that guy all the time. And I think I'll do that. There should be this sense that they are doing it because Jesus is making them do it. It doesn't mean it's without joy and passion and love. It doesn't mean it doesn't fill their cells. It should. But Paul said that the love of Christ compels me. And Jeremiah said that the word of God was like a fire shut up in his bones. And there should be this sense from our leaders that they're doing it because Jesus has called them to do it. The reason we must insist upon that is because who Christ calls, Christ anoints. And we are living in desperate days and we need leaders in the church who are anointed by God for the glory of God. We don't need professionals or charlatans or selfish people. We need leaders who are called and anointed and appointed and empowered by Christ for the glory of Christ. So we should expect in the church that the leaders are called. Number three, we should expect them to show us Jesus. In their teaching, in their preaching, in their living, we should expect them to show us Jesus. That's what we want. We don't always know that's what we want, but that's what we want. And we should expect from our leaders that it is a goal of their life to show us Jesus. And the way they approach ministry, and the way they approach church, and the way they interact with us, and the way they teach, preach, and counsel, show us Jesus. Number four, we should expect that they point us to Jesus. 
that there really is this sense because they show us Jesus and point us to Jesus that they're thoroughly convinced that it's not about them. It doesn't stop with them. They're not trying to gather people to them or to their plan or to their program. But it's really about the person of Jesus Christ. And they, number one, show us Jesus. And then secondly, they point us to Jesus. When we sit down with them for counseling, we shouldn't be getting good advice. We shouldn't be getting psychology. We shouldn't be getting that pastor's latest book. We ought to be getting Jesus. We ought to be pointed to Jesus. Leaders in the church should be people that take your hand and put your hand in the man, put your hand in the hand of the man of Jesus Christ. That's what needs to be happening. We should expect them to show us Jesus and to point us to Jesus. There should be this sense that, wow, it's, it's not about this guy. It's not about these guys. It's not about this church. It's really about Jesus. Number five, we should expect in the church that our leaders are servant leaders. It's the only type of leadership that Christ modeled in the Gospels. He did kneel down and wash the feet of the disciples. And he did say, that the greatest in the kingdom shall be the servant of all. And the Christian model of leadership is servant leadership. There should be a real sense from our leaders that they don't expect you to serve them. They're here to serve you and to serve with you. There should not be a discernible pyramid with the leaders at the top and the people at the bottom. In the kingdom of God, we need to flip that pyramid upside down and, and the leaders are at the bottom and the people at the top and the leaders get to serve more people because they're called to be servant leaders. We should expect that. A real attitude of servanthood. Number six, we should expect purity from our leaders. We should expect sexual purity, fiscal purity, and doctrinal purity. We should expect that from our leaders, that they are pure sexually, fiscally or financially, and doctrinally. We live in an age and in a society in which it is almost impossible to escape broken images of sexuality. And it's incredibly detrimental in society. And we need to expect our leaders to be sexually pure. After doctrinal error, nothing has wreaked more havoc in the church than sexual error. We need our leaders to be sexually pure. If they're single, they need to be celibate. If they're married, they need to be monogamous and faithful. If they're single, they should be abstaining from sex. If they're married, they should be having sex, good sex, and lots of sex. but they should be sexually pure. The marriage bed should be undefiled. After doctrinal error and sexual error, the next thing that has wrecked the church the most perhaps is financial error. We should expect that the leaders in the church are free from the love of money. In fact, it is a requirement in 1 Timothy 3 of elders that they are free from the love of money. 1 Peter 5 says they should serve without wanting sordid gain. There should be financial purity. And then there should be doctrinal purity. purity excuse me. We should expect from our leaders that they are theologians. That they are interested in what the Bible has to say. 
in the grand scope of it, in the minutia of it. There should be a sense that they handle accurately and carefully the word of God. The word of God should be esteemed by and among the leadership. They should give careful attention to studying and communicating the truths of scripture. There should be a real care for error that is destructive. So we should expect purity from our leaders, sexually, fiscally, and doctrinally. Number seven, and along those lines, we should expect our leaders to be accountable. They should be accountable to God because it says in our text that they will give an account. They will stand before God for how they've dealt with those entrusted to their care. They need to be accountable to God and they need to be accountable to other leaders. Whenever a leader has failed in the church, fiscally, financially, even doctrinally, it has been because they didn't have accountability. There was not a structure that they placed around them of people who so knew them, understood them, knew their proclivities and their weaknesses and their temptations and had so much access to their life that they could look at them and say, what are you doing? What are you thinking there? Why are you thinking that way? Why are you talking to that person? Why are you meeting with them? What's going on with your computer? Why are you dealing with that money that way? Why are you interpreting that passage that way? Leaders in the church must have people in their life asking them questions. They must be accountable or failure is inevitable. We should expect them to be accountable. We should be able to go up to any leader and say, to whom are you accountable? Tell me about your accountability structure. And it should exist. And finally, they should be accountable to you. Leaders are accountable to the church and in the church. Leaders are not set apart from the church. Leaders are a part of the church. And we are a community of faith together. We are accountable to one another. And leaders are not mutually exclusive of that. Number eight, we should expect them to be good stewards. They should be good stewards first of the gifts that God has given them. God gifts leaders. And and they should be responsible stewards, good stewards of the gifting that they've been given. In other words, they should be leveraging it, maximizing it for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you can recognize their gifting, if their gifting is profound, you should equally as profoundly be able to recognize that they're using it for the glory of Jesus and the furtherance of the kingdom and the fame of his name. They should be leveraging it and not squandering it. It should be for Christ's glory and not their own. They should also be good stewards with your gifts because each one of you has a special gift that you're to use in the serving of one another, Peter wrote. And so they should be good stewards of your gifts, enabling, giving platform for the church to use their gifts. And then they should be good stewards of God's money for God's glory. Number nine, we should expect our leaders to take our lives seriously. You're precious to Jesus. Jesus went to the cross because he loves you. Every single one of you is precious to God. You are princesses and princes of King Jesus, and he desperately loves you. And so we should expect leaders in his church to take your lives seriously in the way that they plan services and the way that they counsel and the way they approach ministry and the way that they interact with you. 
You're not lab rats. You're not tithing units, as I've heard pastors say. But you are people for whom Jesus bled. We should expect leaders to take our lives seriously. We should expect our leaders to take the church seriously. They should take the church seriously. This is, I'm going to have to just calm down. This is an area that I'm upset about. Much of the modern church and the leaders thereof has for some reason granted themselves license to experiment with the church. We see a lot of this going on these days. Hey, pastor, what's going on in your church? What are you guys up to? Well, we're doing this experiment. We're experimenting with this and that. We're trying this out. We're trying these alternative teachings and we're seeing if this works and we're seeing if that works. And my response to that is, That the church is the blood-bought bride of Jesus and you don't experiment with somebody else's bride. You simply do not do it. We should expect that our leaders are on their knees, on their faces, saying to Christ, Christ, these people are yours. This church is yours. It is yours to possess. It is yours to lead for your glory. What do you want to do with your church? Lead us in it, Lord. We shouldn't feel licensed to experiment, to play with. We should take the church seriously because it is a blood-bought Bride of Jesus. Therefore, number 11, should expect our leaders to love the church. Your leaders should love the church. There should be a true sense that they love the living organism of Christ's body. And though they may be at times self-critical as members of the body, they shouldn't set themselves up as critics over the body. They should be lovers of what Christ loves. Christ loves the church. And we're to build it up according to Ephesians 4 and not just tear it down. Along those lines, number 12, you should expect that your leaders protect the church. Doctrinally, practically, leaders should be protecting the church. Paul, when he was speaking to the elders at the church of Ephesus before he departed from them, said that they were to be on guard for themselves and for the flock. He said that savage wolves would come up from within the flock, teaching false things and wanting to draw people away to themselves, that there would be wolves in the flock that would seek destruction in the flock. And so the leaders were to protect the flock. The leaders were to be on guard. The leaders were to be alert. And we should expect our leaders in the church to protect the church doctrinally and practically. And in light of that, then, number 13, we should expect our church leaders to practice church discipline. The New Testament is clear that there's to be discipline that is practiced within the church. That there are certain behaviors that will get you removed from the church. We should expect our leaders to obey the New Testament and, when right, remove people from the church. There are people who are not here today because we have kicked them out of the church. The goal is always reconciliation. The reason is always because Christ loves people and loves the church. And for those very reasons, he calls the church to practice church discipline. And there are certain behaviors and beliefs that will get you kicked out of it. 
We should expect our leaders to pursue that. Number 14, we should expect our leaders to put their family before the ministry. Count on it, pray for it, hope for it, support it, encourage it. Family comes before ministry. Let me give it to you this way. The Spirit of God says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. In other words, there's a certain self-sacrificial love that Jesus has for the church that men are supposed to have for their wives, that leaders are supposed to have for their families. It is Christ's role to love the church that way. I am, no leader is ever called to love the church that way. We're called to love our families that way. And so we should expect that leaders put their families before the ministry. You should expect your leaders to make decisions which show preference to their family over you. The family of the leaders should see them making decisions, showing preference to the family. What does it gain a man? What does it profit a man to gain the ministry and lose his marriage? To gain the church and lose his children? God hasn't called us to that. And you shouldn't expect leaders to do that. You should expect that they see their family as being a priority over the ministry. Number 15, you should expect that the leaders have real lives, that they're actual people, that they're real, live, flesh and blood, normal people. Maybe not normal, but people. (laughs) You should expect that they're people. They're real people. And this is good news because God uses real people. Amen? And so we should expect and we should allow our leaders to be real. Now, Following on that idea, number 16, we should expect our leaders to have imperfections. I mean, count on it. Only Jesus is perfect. It is a grievous evil to expect the leaders in the church to be without imperfections. That's ridiculous. Only Jesus is perfect. There should be things that when you listen to and observe your leaders, there should be things that you see and hear and you go... That's a bummer. (laughs) There should be imperfections and flaws. Even further, we should expect, number 17, our leaders to have shortcomings. Bigger than just imperfections, but real shortcomings. Things that we see or hear or experience and we're like, God have mercy on you, dude. I mean, real shortcomings like we all have. The truth that emerges is that Jesus uses people in spite of people. And that's to the glory of God. That's to the glory of God that he's able to take messed up people with imperfections and shortcomings, real people, and use them in a meaningful, impactful, powerful way for his glory by his spirit. So adding to that, then number 18... We need to expect our leaders to fail. We need to expect them to fail and to fail us. We need to expect them to make mistakes. Now, let me draw a careful distinction. We need to expect them to fail in a way that is human, 
not in a way that disqualifies. We should not expect our leaders to fail in a way that disqualifies them sexually, financially, or doctrinally. We should not expect those sort of failures from our leaders that disqualify them from ministry. But we must expect them to fail humanly. They will. We need to know there's going to be times that they fail us personally when they don't call us back or they don't follow through or or they don't greet us in the hall in the way that we needed to or, or wanted to be greeted or they make mistakes that are big that affect your life. You need to expect your leaders to fail. To not do that is so naive and so wrong. In light of that, number 19, we need to expect our leaders to repent. Our leaders should be people that repent in private and in public. They should be practicing repentance in their life. And when they fail in a way that is public and affects in a profound way the church, then they should confess and repent before the church. We should expect that. Number 20, we should expect that our leaders have humility. Because like you, they want to be like Jesus. And Jesus was humble. And he's a king of the universe and he's still humble. And Jesus said, and Peter echoed in his epistle, that leaders are not to lord it over the people. They're not to act like princes or kings or rulers. There should be a real sense of humility that represents Christ. Number 21, we should expect our leaders to be diligent and hardworking. You guys are hardworking. Leaders in the church should be hardworking. The ministry shouldn't be a license for vacation. The ministry should be incredibly hard work. You guys are in ministry. Wherever Christ has you working is a ministry and your ministry. Some of you are moms. You work so incredibly hard. Some of you are small business owners. You work so incredibly hard. For some of you, just being married to your spouse is a full-time hard job. Leaders should recognize that you work hard and leaders should work hard too. You should expect your leaders to work hard just like you do. Number 22, you should expect them to tell you the truth about the Bible, about sin, and about the cross. That there really is an inerrant, authoritative, infallible, wonderful word of God. That our lives are to come under its authority and never stand over that we really are wretched, lost, broken, needy sinners. And that through the cross, there really is total forgiveness and healing and freedom. We should expect our leaders to tell us the truth about the Bible, sin, and the cross. Number 23, we should expect that our leaders are available. Now, we need to view this through the lens of our ecclesiology, our our understanding of leadership in the church. The leaders in the church should be available, but that should be mitigated by the fact that we all see Jesus as the focus, as the senior pastor, as the chief leader, as the one who really has the answers for our problems, as the one who is really the one that we need. He's really the solution. And so we all seek Jesus as the senior leader. On occasion when we need a person, 
then we need to recognize that there are a plurality of persons that are called to lead the church. And that they have the same word of God and the same spirit of God as any other leader in the church. And so we should be happy and willing to meet with them. That they're available to us. If we make it about this one person, I need to meet with this one person. Only this one person can understand. Or only this one person has the insight. I I just got to meet with this one person. Then we really don't have the right view of Jesus and the leadership in the church. We can't make it about that one person. And on a very pragmatic level, if the church is a couple thousand people, that one person can't possibly meet with any significant percentage of them. That is why Jesus makes a plurality of leaders in the church. That's why he calls and anoints multiple ones. And in that way, we should expect our leaders to be available. Number 24, we should expect our leaders to equip us. When we sit under their teaching and their influence, there should be this real sense that I'm getting tools for being on mission. I'm getting tools for serving Jesus Christ. This is impacting my life in a way that will cause my life to count for the glory of Christ. Through healing me, through opening my eyes to some things, through allowing me to forgive some people, to uh, uh, cause me to see that the world is bigger than me, and that I have a responsibility within my sphere of influence, there should be the sense that we're getting equipped. And we, we also should, should understand that the leaders are not called to do all the ministry. This is huge in the church that we think, well, you guys are the leaders, you do the ministry, and we'll just kind of come and watch. You do it. We'll even give some money on occasion for it, but you do it. This is not biblical. The job of the leader is to equip the people in the church to do the ministry. We should expect our leaders to equip us and then we should go out and do the mission of Christ in the church and in the culture. And the very last one, we should expect our leaders to teach us the Bible. We should not expect them to entertain us. That's not why God anoints and ordains leaders to entertain you. If a leader happens to have a good personality and says a few funny things on occasion, bonus. That's a bonus. But what we should expect from them is not entertainment, but the word of God. That they're showing us Christ in the text. That they're leading us and pointing us to Jesus through the word of Christ. We should expect them to teach us the Bible. They shouldn't be finding other things to talk about in church. We should expect them to talk about the movies that we watch. We should expect them to find other neat things to talk about. We should expect to come and get the pure, unadulterated, living, active, pounding on fire word of God. And we should not expect our leaders to compete with the entertainment of the world. Don't come into the church expecting the level of entertainment that you get in the world. That's not what the church is supposed to be. And we should expect them to teach us the word of God and not to just make us feel better. You should expect that they will offend you with the truth. 
If the personality offends you, that falls under the failure category. Expect that too. If the word choice offends you, that falls under the imperfections. Expect that too. But you should expect that they offend you with the truth of the word of God. The cross is an offense to those who are perishing. And yet it's the aroma of life to those who are being saved. But the word of God will mess with us. It will deal with us. You should expect leaders to give you the word of God. And the last thing I'll say is this, because the word of God is Christ himself. And the church is not about leaders and it's not about people. It's about Jesus. And God loves his son so much that he has a wonderful plan for him to bring all the nations in worship to him. And God loves you and me enough to give us a part in it. But in the final analysis, it's not about us. And the less you make church about you and your needs and your drama, and the more we make it about Jesus and who he is and his glory and his mission, the better we will be. And so though we've had to talk about ourselves a little bit today and next week because we're in the text, we need to put our worship in, our trust in, we need to cling to and exalt and hope in and love Jesus Christ and him alone. To the extent that we do that, church will be good. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word that has instructed us. And we just want to remember the the biggest point today, the most important thing. It's all about you, Jesus. You're the reason that we gather. You're the reason that we scatter on mission. You're the reason we exist. It's in you that we move and breathe and have our being. You are the one that we love. You're the one that we want. And so, Lord, be bigger in our midst. As we worship you now, King Jesus, would you come, inhabit the praises of your people. Be here in a way that is comforting and scary and transforming all at the same time. We believe that, Jesus, you are present when your church gathers. We believe you're here. Make yourself known and be huge in our midst. Let's worship Jesus together.